the book of Revelation. We're going to look at a message called The Unveiling. And my goal is to get to verse 8 tonight. I say that's my goal because I'm going to try to weave in an introduction to a very complicated book, but a book that may not be as complicated as you think. And I'll explain some of that as we go along. But this is the Apocalypse, the famous book of Revelation. And there's so many things in the book that are fascinating. Uh, some things are not very hard to understand and some things are very complex and we'll get into some of those details tonight. Before we go there, I want to teach you a prayer that I practice and I just use an acronym from the book of Acts, A-C-T-S. If you struggle with knowing how to pray, this is what I often do. I don't always use this, but it's one of the ones I use. I come to God in adoration, that's the A. If you want to write down this acronym, if you've never heard it before, then I confess whatever my shortcomings may be. That's the C. Then I go to Thanksgiving, and I just want to make sure I'm giving thanks to God for all the gifts in my life. And then the S is supplication, and that means to intercede for others. And so I go down a list of people that are on my heart or I know that need prayer, not just people who are sick or in the hospital or hurting, but I also want to try to remember people who I assume are strong. So I'm just going to go through that tonight. I'm just going to take A-C-T-S in a brief prayer, if you'd follow along and pray with me as we pray. Father, first of all, we adore you. We give thanks to your holy name. You are holy. You are the creator of the world. You are the creator of the universe. You made me. You made us. You are the almighty. And we just want to take a minute to say we adore you. We love you. We love you because you first loved us, and we're just so grateful. Father, we confess tonight that we fall short, and we don't confess to get resaved. We are saved, but confession is agreement with God, and confession really brings intimacy of fellowship back to where it needs to be, Lord. So forgive me of my shortcomings, Father. There's so many areas where I fail, I come short. Um, things that I should do that I often fail to do. And you know those areas in all of our lives, Lord. Would you just hear our prayer of confession tonight and just cleanse us, Lord, so that we can have close fellowship with you. That's our heart's desire. Father, we are a thankful people and there's so many things to give thanks for and sometimes when we can't think of something, we just need to remember that we have so many gifts that we sometimes look so quickly past we're thankful for the Bible tonight. We're thankful for fellowship and other Christians that we can enjoy one another's company. We're thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're thankful for a Savior who loved us to the uttermost. We're thankful for family and friends and just good gifts, your beautiful creation, the next breath that we will breathe, the ability to think and talk and reason, all gifts from above. And Father, we want to take a, a moment together corporately to supplicate. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for our uh, government leaders, our military, Lord, and people all around the world, the persecuted church and folks that we know that we can't name all simultaneously right now, but we can say, Lord, would you extend your hand to people who need healing and refreshment and faith and encouragement? Lord, tonight as we study this glorious book of Revelation, you gave it to us to be an encouragement to your church, your body. And tonight, we just want to lay it back at your feet and pray that you'll take us where you want us to go. By the power of your Holy Spirit, let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Amen. The book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is a book that literally means unveiling to reveal. So you can see just in the name of the book, Revelation, it has the idea of revealing or unveiling. So that's the book. The book in the bath, in the, uh, not the Catholic, but the Catholic Bible is <laughs> <laughs> called the Apocalypse. This is what the Greek word means. Revelation means apocalypse. The, early man, the earliest manuscripts that we have, uh, extant manuscripts that we have in our possession today, literally call it the heading, the apocalypse of John. So this falls into the genre of apocalyptic literature. It applies broadly to a group of writings that flourished between 200 B.C. and 100 A.D., uh, that would be at least a good portion of what's called the intertestamental period. And for a Jewish person in the first century to read apocalyptic literature was not unusual. It's unusual to us in this culture in the West to see apocalyptic literature, but it wasn't to a first century Jewish person. So generally, uh, this this book falls into that genre of apocalyptic literature, but that is not the only genre of the book of Revelation, and I'll explain as we get there in a moment. Uh, the apocalypse or apocalyptic literature normally purports the following. It is a divine disclosure, usually through a celestial intermediary, to some prominent figure in the past in which God promises to intervene in human history to bring times of trouble to an end and destroy all wickedness or all unrighteousness. So apocalyptic literature is always what's called eschatological. When you hear of eschatology, if you've uh, heard radio programs or Bible answer shows, eschatology is the study of the last things or the last days. The book of Revelation is a book that you quickly think about when you think about uh, this particular area of study, eschatology, the study of the last thing. So apocalyptic literature is always eschatological. It's not a substitute for prophecy, though. There's a little difference between uh, apocalyptic literature and prophecy, and we'll talk about that in a second. One writer said, uh, apocalyptic literature is prophecy in new idiom. One of the goals of the writing is to explain why the righteous suffer, and what God's going to do about it, basically, why the kingdom may be delayed. In the setting of the book of Revelation, and there's a little debate on the dating of the book, the Christians are suffering and they're wondering about the return of Christ. They're wondering if they're going to see that return or be able to make sense of their suffering. The debate of the dating of the book is which emperor is ruling at that time. Some people, some scholars have dated the book as early as the reign of Claudius, which is about 41 to 54 AD. Most scholars today do not hold that date. There's a late date in the, uh, the emperor life of Trajan, and scholars don't hold that date either. So the debate has really fallen into two camps primarily now. One is the reign of Nero, Nero was known as the beast, so some people tie his name in numeric value to the number 666, and we'll talk about that as we go on. But the majority of scholarship has placed the book of Revelation in the reign of the emperor Domitian. Domitian reigned from 81 to 96 AD. 
So if you read uh, study Bibles and you read the headings and you read the little summary of the book of Revelation, typically you will see the following. The author is John, John the Apostle, and the date of authorship typically is placed around 95 A.D., that's the close of the first century. John is the last surviving apostle. Some of you have heard stories that they tried to boil him in oil and he didn't die. And uh, he was the last surviving apostle. A good portion of the apostles died before the fall of Jerusalem, which is 70 AD. John lived into the 90s AD. And at some point he was banished to what's called a penal island. That is an island where you were penalized or penalized for something you did wrong. In this case, he was banished to the Isle of Patmos, we'll see in verse nine of chapter one, as some sort of punishment. People debate what the nature of this island was. Some people say it was an ancient Alcatraz. Some people say it wasn't that bad. Um, I'll leave that to you for a little bit of further study. But this is what's going on. Uh, people say that in this book, scholars say there's seven acts, or it's a seven-act drama, seven kind of portions that get revealed, re revealing the drama of history or of God's story. This book will unfold what is called the Day of the Lord. There is a debate as to when the Day of the Lord starts. I'll answer those questions when we get to chapter six. But suffice it to say right now, uh, you will see trumpets and bowls in this book as we unfold Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And as we do, we will see the judgment of Almighty God. We will see the rapture of the church. We will see the resurrection. There's so many things that are encapsulated in this book. As I mentioned to you the dating of the book and mentioned to you that the preponderance of external evidence lands it in the reign of Domitian, let me just pause for a second to tell you the importance of this. There's a movement afoot today for a view called preterism. How many of you have heard of preterism? Okay, preterism simply means past. And so there are people who look at the book of Revelation and they say they believe that the book of Revelation is all about the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So it's extremely important to them, people in this camp, that the date of the book precedes A.D. 70. Because if the date of the book of Revelation is after A.D. 70, preterism goes kaput. It blows up. It can't be true. So people like R.C. Sproul would be one example, Hank Hanegraaff another, who hold to some form of preterism, whether it's full preterism or partial preterism. I'm sorry for all the big words. But it just simply means they believe that the book was, fill, was fulfilled in the historical past, namely the first century. And everything that they believe hinges on a pre-A.D. 70 date. For us, who I think most of us in this room would probably tend towards being futurists, that is, we believe there's a future fulfillment of the book of Revelation, the date to us doesn't matter. It could be dated A.D. 50, it could be dated A.D. 95, it wouldn't matter to our view, but it's extremely important to the preterists. You might ask, well, what's the external evidence, Pastor Michael, for a later date or the, the reign of Domitian being the correct date? Well, Irenaeus is the main source. Irenaeus, who's later quoted by Eusebius, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen, these are all pretty early church fathers, uh, hold that John wrote the book in the reign of Domitian. There's not a lot of external evidence for the earlier date of the reign of Nero. 
The best they say is that there's a temple that's there and it gets measured. And, and the scholars say who hold this view that that's a temple that exists so that uh, Jerusalem has not been destroyed because the temple's standing and John's asked to measure it. But I don't think that's the temple of Jerusalem. I think that is either a future temple or a symbolic temple, but it's certainly not the temple that stood at the time. Others who, who are come along later, like Victorinus, Eusebius, and even Jerome, all hold that John wrote in the reign of Domitian. So that's a little bit about just kind of the dating. There's a little bit of a, a debate about the authorship of the book of Revelation, even though John identifies himself at least four different times. Some people say that the book was written by John the Elder. There's a few references to a John the Elder or a John uh, the Bishop. And uh, I think you would just, just to save you a bunch of time and a bunch of reading, because you could read 50 different commentaries on the book of Revelation, uh, I think most of the majority of conservative scholars hold that John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation. You say, well, why do people even bring up John the Elder? Because there is a difference in the quality of Greek from the Gospel of John. Remember, John didn't just author Revelation. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. So there's quite a difference between the Greek value, the original language of Greek in Revelation, as opposed to, for example, the Gospel of John. Just really quick. In the Gospel of John, they say it's a very polished Greek. They say in Revelation, it's not so polished. It's maybe some of the worst Greek that's in the New Testament. Why the difference? Well, New Testament writers often wrote with what's called an amunesis. That is, someone like a secretary. So while there are New Testament authors that gave the, uh, the book, they were the medium through which the book was given, they didn't always pen the book. So they often had something like a secretary. And if that secretary is more polished in the Greek, then they were able to communicate the language in a more polished fashion. Uh, those who read Greek and Hebrew say that some of the most polished Greek that we have in the New Testament comes from the pen of Luke. And uh, of course, you know, the, the uh, Gospel of John is up there as well. But this is why uh, some question the authorship of John. But I'm just going to tell you if my conclusion is that John the Apostle has written this book. So the first verse of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, starts off this way. It says, the Revelation. There's your name <laughs> of the book. And so the name comes from the very first portion of the very first uh, verse of the book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation is apocalypsis. If you want it spelled, it's A-P-O-K-A-L-U-P-S-I-S. Apocalypsis. It's where we get the English word apocalypse. And the word literally means a disclosure, an unveiling, a uncovering, an appearing, a pulling back of the curtain, if you will. That's the name. To reveal, as I said at the outset, the book of Revelation is the apocalypse, the unveiling. It literally means to remove the cover or to remove the veil. There are several layers of genre as we do an introduction to the book that you need to know about. Number one, in the very first verse of the book, it's apocalyptic. And I mentioned to you the nature of that type of genre or literature. Second, you'll notice that the book is prophetic. Look at verse three. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the what? Prophecy. The book is prophetic. 
It's a revealing from or of Jesus Christ. We'll get to that in a second. Apocalyptic. It is prophetic, verse 3. It is a prophecy, so there's a distinction between the two. And it is also epistolary. You say, what is that, Pastor Michael? Epistolary is just a big word to say it's also an epistle. Um, most of the New Testament letters, 27 letters or books in the New Testament, are addressed to a church or an individual. You'll have, for example, the book of Acts written to Theophilus. The book of Luke written to Theophilus. The book of Galatians written to the church at Galatia or Colossae, Colossians to Colossae. You'll have letters written from Paul to Timothy or Titus. There's a very few letters in the New Testament that are not addressed to an individual or a church. And so in this sense, this is also an epistle. Look at verse 4. John writes to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this makes it an epistle. It is addressed as a letter to these particular churches. Here is a cluster of churches in Asia. Not Asia as we know today, but what's called proconsular Asia, which is Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So Asia was a name given by the Roman Empire when they dominated that landmass, and so they called it Asia Minor. So it is apocalyptic, prophetic, and epistolary. All right? You didn't think that you could hear that many crazy words in one sentence, did you? But anyway, there it is. All right? So this is the different style. The apocalyptic style is uh, something that you see sometimes with uh, phenomenon in the sky, dragons. Um, you have angelic messengers. It's not just uh, isolated to apocalyptic literature, but this seems to be what's typical of it. In Revelation 1, verse 1, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Some people say it's both a revelation of Jesus Christ and a revelation from Jesus Christ. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense that it has high Christology. What does that mean? It means that your view of Christ will be elevated as you read this book. But this book is not just about a view of Christ. This book is largely about an unveiling of the future, or what many of us believe is largely futuristic. So it is an unveiling of Jesus Christ, but it's also an unveiling of what's going to happen in the future. So it's a, some scholars say it's a revelation mediated by Jesus Christ. In other words, it comes from him to his people so that we might know and understand what the future holds. You might ask, well, what's the purpose of the book? Why would Jesus Christ give this revelation? What's his purpose? I think two things, one for peace and two for preparation, just simply peace and preparation. Number one, the church that's addressed in the book of Revelation is a persecuted church and they need to know that God is still on the throne. How many of you need to know that? You watch a news report, you see threats of war, you see people threatening, threatening nuclear devices, you see persecution in the Middle East and you start to wonder, God, are you still on the throne? God, are you there? What's going on? So God addresses his people in this book to give us peace. Secondly, it is for preparation. There will be a generation that experiences these phenomena in some way, and uh, they're not to be fearful, rather they're to be trusting in God. It is to show, look at verse one, God gave him that revelation, verse one, to show his bondservants. See the word bondservants there? You'll see it many times in the New Testament. Bondservants is doulos in Greek, and it's eved in Hebrew. 
A bondservant in Exodus 21 was a person literally attached to the house. A bondservant made a decision at the end of a seven-year period of service to decide that he didn't want to leave his master or his household. So he would go and do a ceremony at a door and at a threshold of a home is where they would do covenants. And he would stand at the threshold and put his ear against the door and they would take an awl and they would put the awl through his ear, boring a hole in the ear. The significance was twofold. One, my ear will always be open to my master. Whatever he asked me to do, I will do. I'm his voluntary doulos or eved. Two, it meant I will always be attached to his house. I'm not going anywhere. My ear will be open and I'll always be attached to my master's house. Are you with me? So the bond servants of Jesus Christ are addressed here and they are told that they're being given this revelation to encourage them. Notice it is to his bondservants and it is addressing those who are servants of God. Now before we move on to um, a controversy, just a little bit more about the book. I would say to you, don't be scared of this book because I think this book, you'll see in a moment, has a blessing attached to it and I think you'll be blessed. And I want to encourage you, don't just come on the opening night of the study. Try to come you know, throughout the study if you can because you'll benefit from it. Chapter 1 will remind us of Jesus' nature and power. Chapters 2 and 3 will address the seven churches we just talked about. Chapters 4 and 5 will get a glimpse into a heavenly scene and heavenly worship. In fact, some uh, pastors and scholars have said the book of Revelation is our New Testament song book. We'll actually hear some songs that are sung in heaven, just like we have a book of Psalms and we learn about singing from the life of Israel and their feasts and festivals. In the book of Revelation, we will hear some songs that are sung in heaven. So we'll learn some things about worship. In chapter 6 through 18, we're going to see God's judgment. We're going to see the harlot. We're going to see the bride, some imagery that's coming. We're going to see Jesus come again in chapter 19. And in chapter 20, we'll see a judgment of the living and the dead. In 21 and 22, we'll see new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, the tree of life. So, so much fantastic stuff coming in the coming weeks and months. This is a message to the church not to lose heart. Tonight, it's a message to you. Don't lose heart. God is still on his throne. The natural question when you study a book like Revelation is to ask the question, when? <laughs> right? Isn't that the big $64,000 question? When will these things take place? All right, I'm going to give you four views of the book of Revelation. I don't know if you're interested, but I think it's important that you know there are four different approaches to interpretation of the book of Revelation. Number one is the preterist view. The preterist view is called contemporary historical. If you're taking notes, preterist is number one, the approach to interpretation of the book of Revelation. It's called the contemporary historical view. As I mentioned, there are partial preterists and full preterists, but just to the point, preterists hold that the book of Revelation was at least largely fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. However, some preterists believe the book of Revelation also could depict the fall of Rome in A.D. 476. So that's just kind of an interesting secondary plank, I guess, and that's their view. Number two, there's a, a historical view. Number two, the historical view sees Revelation as a forecast of the course of history leading up to the interpreter's own time. 
sketching history, for example, of Western Europe, the Reformation, the French Revolution, individual leaders such as Charlemagne and Mussolini. It's quite a subjective view, meaning it's open to much interpretation and it's highly doubtful. I think it's way too subjective and, again, highly doubtful. But there are some people who are in this camp, and so it must be mentioned. Number three, and where probably a lot of you have heard most of your information in, uh, in our United States, is the futurist view, the futurist view. Many futurists are called dispensationalists. Dispensationalists regard everything from Revelation 4.1 and on as belonging to a period yet future. The letters to the seven churches are often held to represent successive ages of church history that lead up to the rapture of the church. Most dispensationalists uh, hold to a pre-tribulation rapture position and believe the rapture is captured in Revelation 4.1. When we get there, I'll talk to you about the different views of the rapture. One writer says the major weakness of this position is that it leaves the book without any particular significance for those to whom it was addressed. So when you make it completely futuristic, you kind of take it out of its historical context. However, there are those in the futurist camp who hold a near-far fulfillment of the book, as I do. I believe that some of the things in the book are literally fulfilled in history past, but a good portion of the book is yet to be fulfilled. So you could call this a near-far fulfillment. Here's an example. When Jesus gave the sermon uh, from the Mount of Olives called the Olivet Discourse, some of the things that he said obviously were fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem. Other things that he said are obviously going to be fulfilled in the future. Much of predictive prophecy or prophetic futuristic interpretation has to do with near-far fulfillment. Sometimes what happens is there's a fulfillment in the life of the prophet, but a second layer and even a third layer sometimes of fulfillment that can come in the future. That's the marvel of the Bible. And to me, that just gives me more uh, grounding in terms of the fact that the Bible is uh, divine and not human in origin. I'll give you an example. John, in his time, may have saw the beast as the Roman Empire. However, I think the Roman Empire, as the beast in this sense, is simply a foreshadowing of a future beast empire. Some people say it's going to be a revived Roman Empire. When we get there, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Just like the day of the Lord is foreshadowed, for example, in the book of Joel, where there's this locust army and, there's, and it describes the day of the Lord. It's a day of the Lord in embryo, but the future ultimate day of the Lord is yet to be fulfilled. But sometimes you see types and shadows in prophecy or dual fulfillment. So there are some in the futurist camp who hold a near-far fulfillment. I do, and that's where I would place myself. Fourth and final, there's an idealist or timeless symbolic view. Just call it the idealist view. The idealist says this, there is no specific events or historical fulfillment of the book of Revelation. It only teaches basic principles on which God acts as seen throughout history. No historical fulfillment, no futuristic fulfillment, just basic principles for life and the struggle between good and evil, light and darkness is the idealistic view. And I don't hold that, but there are folks who hold that view as timeless and symbolic. 
Of course, that would mean there's uh, no future age to come in terms of a literal fulfillment. New Jerusalem, Satan and his hosts will not be utterly destroyed and vanquished. There's a lot of problems with that idealistic view, and so I don't hold that. But I will say this. As you think about the different approaches to the interpreting method of the book of Revelation, you have to say that often not one method suffices. Some of, their, some of these methods of interpretation can cross over. That's why you have good scholars in different camps. And you're like, well, what should I believe? This, this guy's a preterist, and he's pretty smart. And then this guy's a futurist. Who should I believe? Well, sometimes there's elements of both interpretive models that do apply. Um, the argument, for example, that this happened during the reign of Nero, as I mentioned, that he's called the beast. There's a numeric fulfillment of his name, 666. Uh, Nero committed suicide in AD 68. But I don't think it happened during the reign of Nero. So I'm just going to tell you, I believe the book was written during the reign of Domitian. And here's what was going on at the time. There was an ever-evolving emperor worship that was happening in the Roman Empire. Now, if you're familiar with history, and as you struggle with the Bible, you get a little bit more familiar with history, and you wonder why you didn't pay more attention in high school. Can I get a witness? Because you learn about Assyria, and you learn about Babylon, you learn about Egypt, and you learn about the Greek Empire, and the Seleucid Dynasty, and all the way to the Roman Empire, and then back on up as we cross over that A.D. line. Well, Rome was the dominant power of the time. And so what was happening is the Roman emperors began to receive worship. Um, and there were different Roman emperors that were uh, kind of coming up at the time. One of them was Julius Caesar, who accepted worship during his life. Uh, Julius Caesar accepted worship as a god during his lifetime. Augustus was more cautious in Rome, in the city of Rome, but he sanctioned temples to himself in different provinces. Caligula was not content with voluntary worship. He demanded that his subjects everywhere do homage to his statue. By the time of Nero, the imperial cult, as it's called, was firmly established of emperor worship. And by the time of Domitian, the failure to honor the emperor as a god became a political offense and punishable. And here's why this is important. The book of Revelation is written to a people who are being persecuted. Here's an example. Skip ahead to Revelation 2. Look at verse 13. As Jesus, through John, is addressing the church at Pergamum, Revelation 2.12 says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell. 2.13, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name. Did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now we have a record here in Revelation 2 of a man who would not deny his faith and was killed for it. People say that in the reign of Nero, there wasn't a lot of Christian persecution for what the Romans called atheism. Let me explain. The Romans called atheism anything that denied worship to their gods or their emperor. They would call you an atheist. But Christian persecution really did not become widespread in the empire until the reign of Domitian. So that's a little bit more evidence why we think that the book was written in, during the reign of Domitian. By the way, there's, there's also a redivivist myth that came about, and it said this. It said that Nero was raised from the dead. And uh, they think that this is also captured in Revelation 13 and 17. So here's the bottom line. 
Nero would have had to have died and then resurrected for that to be true. And then that would also affect the dating and mean that the book would have to be dated in the reign of Domitian. But anyway, here's the, here's the point. Widespread persecution of Christians did not seem to occur until the reign of Domitian. And so that seems to make sense that the book was written during his lifetime. If he is the guy, and uh, just a side note for those of you who are interested in church history and you're kind of wondering, you know, what's the quote from you know, this, this uh, evidence that the book was written during his lifetime? Irenaeus, who is a church leader at the end of the second century, so we're talking, you know, 180s, 190s, he says, John, the apostle, beheld the apocalyptic vision toward the end of Domitian's reign. Uh, that's from Irenaeus. Um, According to tradition, John the Apostle was eventually released from the Isle of Patmos and buried in Ephesus. The futurist view of the book of Revelation, as I mentioned, includes support from Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Hippolytus. These were all uh, believers in the millennial reign of Christ. They held that the apocalypse foretold a literal millennial kingdom on earth to be followed by a general resurrection judgment and a renewal of heaven and earth. So there's, uh, in the Shepherd of Hermas, an early document that is non-canonical. That means it's not inspired, but it was very held in high repute, and it's written about the first part to the middle of the second century, mentions a coming tribulation period. I mention this because you'll hear people say, oh, none of the church fathers believed in a tribulation and an antichrist and a future millennium. Yes, they did. If you want the quotes, they're in my notes right up here, and I'll send them to you. So there were early church fathers who held this. And Domitian was a, one writer says, a moral catastrophe of a man. He was not terribly impressive physically, I'm quoting. He's described as being sensitive about his baldness, as having a protruding belly, and spindling legs. <laughs> I had to look up spindling. I spent a lot of time on Webster's today. What does spindling legs mean? Is, does he do spins? Actually, it means he had a bit of chicken legs. He kind of had... Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Well, this guy was a nut. He, he was stealing other men's wives. He, he let his brother die. His brother was on his, you know, had a terrible illness. He told nobody really to take care of him. He, uh, he uh, buried a woman alive for uh, you know, having a lover. He slew another person for making jokes about him, killed them. Uh, he demanded worship. He was a pretty crazy guy. And this was what the church was facing in these days. The church was facing, you know, are you gonna give your allegiance to Jesus or to Caesar? And that's really still, if you think about ultimate issues and how the book of Revelation still applies to our lives today, it's about who you're going to give your allegiance to when, when it's going to cost you something. Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are facing that right now. Where does your allegiance truly lie? The book of Revelation will encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. It will tell you to keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God because when, our Christ, when Christ, our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So verse 1 says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, and this is why you can see that we're not probably going to get to verse 8, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. 
and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. We'll talk about the layers of Individuals that get this this revelation, but here for for a moment, let's talk about the phrase "it must shortly take place." This has bothered a lot of people because if you told somebody, "Hey, I'll be over shortly," that would mean to most people that you're going to be over in a matter of, depending on your uh, track record. When you say, I'll be somewhere shortly, depending on how much that really means to individuals who know you best, you could say, I'll be over shortly. And, and for most people, that means I'll be over in a few minutes, right? The, the Greek word is interesting, and it's, it's important here. It's, it's takos, T-A-C-H-O-S, or the phrase together is entekai. And here's, here's what the phrase means. It means Shortly means in a brief space of time, but the word also can mean quickly or it can also be a synonym for suddenly. So you're going to see many times in this book, these things must happen shortly or take place shortly. Does that mean in a brief amount of time from the time the revelation is written? Well, that would depend on the date of the book, wouldn't it? And what the book is really about. Here's a thought. Why um, do you think that the churches in Asia Minor that are located in modern-day Turkey would be so concerned to know about the fall of Jerusalem? Just think about that for a second. The seven churches in Asia Minor that are addressed in the book of Revelation are in Turkey, well removed from Jerusalem. If the book of Revelation is about the fall of Jerusalem, why this urgency to get this message to churches in Asia Minor. If it's all about just the fall of Jerusalem, you see that that's a thought that, you know, should make us at least pause to ask a bigger question like, well, who is the intended audience of this? The word takos is where we get the word tachometer. So it's the the Greek word from which we get the word tachometer. It's an instrument used to determine the speed of an engine. So those who, who hold a more futurist view say shortly in this sense means when it starts to happen, it will happen suddenly. We might say it this way. I'm going to come, come over to your house and do a wedding ceremony. And I might say to you, the wedding ceremony will be brief. And you'll say, yeah, right, Pastor Michael, nothing you do is brief. <laughs> Amen. I, I'm with you. All right. But if I said to you, it'll be a brief ceremony when I get there and things start, I'm saying it's going to move with rapidity or rapidly, okay? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about two different views. Some people say, no, it just means shortly. It just means it's going to happen quick. It's got to be in their lifetime, the audience that received this. And others say, no, what it means is when it starts, it will happen rapidly, you all know that you've heard a lot of talk about the seven years or the 70th week of Daniel. And you know that the book of Revelation focuses on those seven years. And a large portion of it is the last three and a half years. Well, that would be a rapid progression from end times events to the return of Christ and the setting up of a new Jerusalem and so forth. And so that's why there are scholars in the futurist camp who say you can't hang your hat on this word because it does... Uh, you know, it can mean with rapidness. I, th- I think here's where we need to show a couple of examples. Turn to Romans 16 for a second. Romans 16. 
Romans 16, we're going to look at verse 20 together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 16, look at verse 20. It says, this is a, a doxology at the end of the book. It's a moment of praise to God. And it says, the God of peace, Romans 16, 20, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus or our Lord Jesus be with you. See the word soon there? That's the same word we're dealing with for shortly. And tacky. It's, uh, he will soon crush Satan. Now, has, has Satan been crushed under the Lord's feet? Well, you could say, well, Jesus crushed Satan at the cross, but Romans 16 is written after the cross, right? So what does it mean he will soon crush Satan under your feet? It could mean that when he does it, it will be rapid. It will be bam. When Satan takes, puts his boxing gloves on and decides he's going to fight God, how quick will the match be? Jesus Christ is going to slay the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, with the appearance of his, the glory of his coming and the breath of his mouth. Bam! It's going to be a short fight. Amen. Rapid. Everybody with me? Amen. It's going to go quick. Um, since we're in the book of Revelation, skip ahead to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, look at verse 9. We have about 15 minutes left and I will be faithful to the clock. Otherwise, we'd have to start serving the oatmeal raisin cookies early. <laughs> Revelation 20, look at verse 9. Satan's been released here, and they came up, Revelation 29, on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Would you call that rapid? I would. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here's the idea of rapid. Satan will be soon crushed under your feet. When it happens, it will happen rapidly. But I'm not sure that for our preterist friends and brothers that it's a good case to be made that it means shortly or within the window of time of the original audience. One more, Luke 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Go to Luke 18. Jesus is addressing end times subject matter. Luke 18, and he says these words. Luke 18, verse 7. Luke 18, 7. He says, Now shall not God, Luke 18, 7, bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you, Luke 18, 8, that he will bring about justice for them. What's your Bible say there? Quickly or speedily, there's our word again, en teke, speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, context, second coming, will he find faith on the earth? Do you see that the word speedily can mean with rapidness when the event occurs? The context of Luke 18, 7 and 8 is certainly the end of the age, the return of Christ, and the same phrase is used. And so, with all due respect to our predators, Friends, back to Revelation, I would just say that that is not the best argument to hang your hat on. Although I would say it's not something to ignore. I think it is compelling, and I think you have to wrestle with it. We're still in verse one. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> this is an introduction to the book, so it's all right. The things which must shortly take place, middle of one, and he sent and communicated it by his angel 
to his bondservant, John. So he sent and communicated it. The word for communicated there in Greek is semeno, S-E-M-A-I-N-O. It's closely related, related to the word sign, and it is a good indication of what's ahead that the book of Revelation will be largely written in signs and symbols. So when you see sent and communicated there, you have the idea of sign or semeno, largely written in symbolic fashion. Just quickly, examples. Peoples, nations, and spiritual beings are going to be depicted as animals. Jesus is depicted as a lamb. What does he have there? Seven horns and seven eyes? Just a newsflash, Jesus is not literally a lamb, nor does he have seven horns or seven eyes. This is symbolic language. Now, his being a lamb speaks of his redemption as the lamb of God, John 1.29. Seven is a number of completion or perfection, and horns in the Old Testament and new speaks of power. He has perfect power, and his seven eyes speaks of his omniscience. But it's still symbolism. Everybody with me? So when you read the book of Revelation, you, you use the literal principle of interpretation. What is that? It means you take things in the sense in which they were intended. When Jesus says, I am the door, he doesn't mean I am a brass handle and a block of wood with hinges. He means I am the way to God. The literal principle of interpretation doesn't mean that you take everything in a wooden literal sense. It means that you take writers in the sense in which they meant a statement. Example, if I said to you, the other day it was raining cats and dogs, you wouldn't think I was saying it was coming down, right? You know I am using symbolic or metaphorical language to say it was raining hard. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is not saying, I am oral wheat. <laughs> he is saying, I am the sustenance of God. When you take me in spiritually, you will be fed and full and complete. So we're going to see that many times. We're going to see beasts and things with horns. And uh, the devil, for example, is depicted as a dragon and a serpent. Which one is he, a dragon or a serpent? He's neither. He's a spiritual entity. He was a beautiful angel, perhaps one of the archangels. He is non-corporeal. What's that mean? He doesn't have a body. He's not a dragon or a serpent. I know he probably possessed a serpent in the book of uh, Genesis, but, but what we're saying is, in essence, he's neither of these. But they depict things about him. He has serpent-like qualities. He has dragon-like qualities. Revelation 12. We'll get there. Um, we have an animal with seven heads and ten horns that's said to rule the world, Revelation 13.1. We're going to meet a bride in Revelation 19, the church, and we're going to meet a harlot. The harlot is drunk with the blood of saints and martyrs, Revelation 17 and 18. But these, the bride and the harlot also depict cities, Mystery Babylon and the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem seems to be dressed as a bride adorned for her husband. Is she a city? Or is she the church? Well, this is where symbolism comes in. There's much symbolism here. Mystery Babylon is symbolized. I do not think Mystery Babylon is the Babylon that now sits in the area of Iraq. 
Some people hold that. I think it's more symbolic. I think it's saying that it has Babylon-like qualities. Many theologians say that Mystery Babylon is a worldwide empire and even a worldwide political and religious system. But we're not necessarily to take this literally. I'm not saying that there aren't some numbers in the Bible not to take, or in Revelation not to take literally because there can be. 144,000 may be a literal number in Revelation 7. Two witnesses I take as two witnesses. And so there are gonna be some that you know, are plainly literal. Here's an example. In chapter two, verse 20, there's a woman that Jesus addresses named Jezebel. She's in a church corrupting people to commit idolatry and sexual immorality. Is her real name Jezebel? Probably not. But Jesus calls her Jezebel because she has Jezebel-like qualities like the Jezebel in the Old Testament who did the very same thing, caused the Israelites to fall into idolatry and sexual immorality. Here's another one. Uh, Jerusalem is spiritually or mystically called Sodom and Egypt in Revelation 11.8. This is a good example of symbolism. We know where the Lord was crucified is what the text says is not Egypt or Sodom. But Jerusalem has come, become or is symbolized by these nations. In fact, Zahn holds that by designating Jerusalem as Sodom, the author is indicating that the city, city has already fallen and therefore the late date is given further credence. I'll let you chew on that one. There is a chain of revelatory disclosure in verse one. Far, five parties are involved, back to Revelation one, verse one. And uh, we're winding down for tonight. They are God, Jesus, the angel, John who wrote it down, and the servants of God who receive it. One more time. The five parties involved in the revelatory chain of disclosure are God, Jesus, the angel, John, who wrote it down, and the servants of God. And so it comes to them. Verse two. <laughs> who bore witness, the word witness is martyrio, it's where we get the word martyr. It used to be just a witness in a court of law or somebody who witnessed something and it came to be known as a faithful witness who was willing to die for their faith. Martyrio who bore witness to the word of God, this is what John bore witness to, the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, and uh, even to all that he saw. In this case, John is truly a seer. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? S-E-E-R. I mean, a seer is a prophet, and a prophet is communicating what he saw. John will give visions and symbolism. Does he know what everything means that he sees? I doubt it. But what he's going to communicate is what he sees. God says, write down what you see. Put it in a book. And John's going to do that. He's, gonna, he's telling us, I wrote down what I saw. And I bear witness to the word of God. John was an eyewitness of many things uh, that he saw. He touched and saw Jesus Christ. He saw the crucifixion. He experienced the resurrected Christ. He talks about the, the Lagos in John 1.1. 1, 1. The Lamb in John 1.29, living water, these are all themes we'll see in the book of Revelation, being an overcomer from 1 John to the book of Revelation. He says, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. I just read John, 1 John 1.3 and John 21.24. 
John says, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name, John 20, 30, and 31. And now a blessing, verse three. And this is where we'll end tonight. Blessed, Revelation 1, 3, the word blessed is fortunate, well-off, oh, how happy, This is what scholars call is the first of seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. If you're interested, the others are Revelation 14, 13, 16, 15, 19, 9, 20, verse 6, 22, 7, and verse 14. Go back and listen to it. We'll have it online pretty soon. Blessed is he who reads... Those who hear the words, often in these climates, people were not all, uh, did not all have the ability to read. Those who read, those who hear the words of the prophecy, and what? Heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. Jesus said, see to it that no one mislead you, Luke 21, 8, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. We have to be careful, but we need to read, understand, and heed the word of God. In Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said, somebody said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Do you want to be blessed? It's not just about hearing God's word. It's about what? Heeding it. We want to be people who hear and heed. If you just are merely a hearer and not a doer, Jesus said, I'll show you what that person is like. That person is like a person who built their house on sand. And the storm came and the wind blew and it beat hard against that house and that house fell and many scholars believe when Jesus uses this language he's talking about the ultimate judgment and people falling under the judgment because they didn't build their house upon Jesus Christ for no other foundation can be laid except that which is laid which is Jesus Christ I'll show you another man he hears my words and he does them he's like a man who built his house on the rock And the same wind came, the same storm, the same flood, the same rain, and it beat against that house, and that house did not fall. The key to blessing is to hear and heed the word of God. Read and heed, if you want to put it that way. A word about everyone's personal eschatology, because I know when we, we read the book of Revelation, we get excited about end time stuff. The story is told about a man who was walking on the beach He found, washed up on the sand, a used magic lamp. When the genie answered his rub, he told told him that the lamp contained but one remaining wish. The man pondered for a moment and then requested a, a copy of the stock page from the local newspaper dated exactly one year later. In a puff of smoke, the genie was gone and in his place was the financial news. Gleefully, the man sat down to peruse his trophy. He could invest with certainty, knowing the winners and losers one year in advance. He'd be a wealthy man. As the paper fell into his lap, it turned over by the wind to the obituary column found on the reverse side of the page. And the name on the top of the list, well, you guessed it, was his. A word about personal eschatology. 
when we talk about timing of the rapture and your different views of the end times, you know, Jesus is going to come when God has fixed that date, right? We know God has fixed a day when he will judge the world. The date is on God's calendar. God knows the date. But we're all a heartbeat away from eternity, and we don't even have tomorrow promised to us. So when we go out and witness, we can use the idea of an end time scenario, certainly to witness to people, but don't you think that it's also relevant to say to people, you don't even know if you have tomorrow, brother. <laughs> Get right with God. Well, if, if the end times start to unfold, uh, tell me about that Antichrist guy one, once again, and then I'll become a Christian. No, you, you could die tonight. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Your life's a vapor. It's here today. It's gone to, tomorrow. So we need to read and heed. You see, your life counts, not only for time, but for eternity. Well, Father, we are grateful for this introductory study in the book of Revelation, and I wish we had more time, but we'll make it up next week. But we do know it's an exciting book. There's a lot to know, a lot to learn, and I'm sure that folks are going to need to maybe review this information or um, go back and revisit this on their own study. But I do know this, Lord, you have promised a blessing to those who read, hear, and heed the book of Revelation, and for that matter, all of Revelation, the whole Bible, all 66 books are breathed out by God. Would you breathe into us tonight, Lord, things that you want us to hold on to from your holy word. Your word is inspired, profitable, for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Lord, breathe into us tonight. Some of us need refreshment. Some of us need bolstered faith. Some of us need a word from you just to be encouraged. Whatever it may be tonight, a healing. Lord, uh, just assurance that you're on the throne and you know where we're at tonight. Just pray you'd minister to your people. And with your head and heart bowed, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know this one who's on the throne, who's conquered sin and death, or you need to rededicate, you've been running from him, tonight would be a great night to get right. And just say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I want you to be my Savior, my Lord, my King. I confess my sin. I repent of it. And I trust you. Pray it right now if it's you. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. Save me, Lord God. Make me what you want me to be. Lord, thank you for this opening night of Revelation. We're excited. I'm excited for the people who have come out tonight. And I pray that the rest of the study, you'll bless it, show us glorious things from your word, build us up so that we can be people who hear, read, and heed your word and make a difference while we yet, yet have breath in our lungs. We love you, we worship you, and we ask all of this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you.